This season of The Francis Effect is sponsored in part by Franciscan Media, seeking to spread the gospel in the spirit of St. Francis. Franciscan Media publishes books by authors like Richard Rohr, Heather King, and Ronald Rollheiser. Get 25% off your first order in the store when you use the code FRANCISFX, that's Francis, the letter F, and the letter X, at franciscanmedia.org. That's franciscanmedia.org. This season of The Francis Effect is brought to you by Liturgical Press in Collegeville, Minnesota. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality, evolving to serve the changing needs of the Christian church. They produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all readers looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Hello, and welcome to the Francis Effect Podcast. We are on the back half of Season 5. My name is David Dalt, and I host a radio show called Things Not Seen, about culture and faith, and I teach at Loyola University's Institute for Pastoral Studies, and I write a monthly column for St. Anthony Messenger Magazine. I'm here with my friend Dan Haran. He's a Franciscan friar of Holy Name Province in New York, and is an assistant professor of systematic theology and spirituality at the Catholic Theological Union here in Chicago. He's also a columnist for the National Catholic Reporter. Every couple of weeks, we get together to bring you commentary on current events from a perspective informed by our shared Catholic faith. Dan, as always, it's great to see you. David, the pleasure is all mine. Always a pleasure to see you. We also have special bonus segments for all you friends of Frank who support the show by donating each month on Patreon. Every couple of weeks we add a bit of bonus audio, might be an extended discussion or a column commentary by our friend Dan Haran. If you'd like to hear them, you can go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod and become a monthly supporter of the show. Please follow us on Twitter and Facebook at FrancisFXPod. That's Francis, the letters F and X, and the word pod. And if you want to send us a question or comment, you can always talk to Frank by emailing FrancisEffectPod at gmail.com. That's effect spelled the English way, E-F-F-E-C-T. Today we're going to be talking about three topics. Recently, Joe Biden was denied the Eucharist in Florence, South Carolina. We're going to be talking about that. We're going to be talking about a lengthy column from Russ Douthat that's interviewed Cardinal Raymond Burke recently. And we're also going to be talking about the fall of the Berlin Wall, the 30th anniversary of that. So all that is coming up on the show. But for right now, Dan, how have you been? David, I've been very well. It's, um, you know, we're in the back end of season five, but we're also on the back end of a semester. And you and I were just talking off air about, you know, how we're facing that in the classroom and in the academic calendar. So it's good. It's also getting very cold here in Chicago. We're recording this on a record cold day in November where the wind chill is in the negative digits Fahrenheit, which is way, way, way too early for this kind of nonsense. Rare for this kind of thing, yeah. Yeah, but I'm good. I just recently came back from England. I was there again, this time at Durham University to present at a conference on the Franciscan tradition. It was a wonderful conference. The turnout, uh, the attendance was far larger than the university was expecting. They thought it would be kind of a small conference. And the speakers came from all over the world. There was a a presenter from Australia, a few of us from the United States, all over Europe. There were folks attending from Africa. I mean, it was really quite international and very exciting. So it it was really great to be there and be a part of that. And then before coming back to Chicago, I I stopped just on the way in San Antonio, Texas, where I had the real privilege and honor to be the keynote speaker at their annual Archdiocesan Conference. They call it the Annual Assembly. And it's really an extraordinary event. I was going to say San Antonio is kind of a favorite stop for you, isn't it? It has become so. And yeah, it's, I, I joke, I have, I have two friends that live down there and, you know, we, one of, one of whom I went to grad school with in, in Boston, they've been joking. They've lived there for less than a year and they've said that <laughs> I've been visiting more than any, than their family or friends or anybody else that I've become like their closest friend in San Antonio. And, and it's just because for this past year, there've been a number of circumstances that have brought me down there, uh, including a year ago, this time speaking, and one of the concurrent or breakout sessions, which was a joy at the same conference, and then um, giving a series of lectures for the Oblate School of Theology in the summertime at their at their spirituality conference, and then I was there last month for another uh, public lecture, and 
it's just uh, I, I didn't set out to uh, make San Antonio a second home, but um, I have to say I love I love it. I love the city. Um, it's always great to see my friends there, but there's a lot of really cool stuff. And, and just again, I think last year around this time when I came back, I did a shout out to Archbishop Gustavo and Bishop Mike and the whole crew there, the whole archdiocesan staff and volunteers. They run an amazing operation. And, you know, you and I both know firsthand, and we've, we've done special episodes on the LA Religious Education Congress. That is sui generis. It's a, it's a kind of beast of its own, you know, in its own genus. It's so huge. And yet this is a conference that has about 4,000 people. So it's not, a small, it's not a small thing. And they just execute an organizational style that makes it very welcoming and flows very naturally and is a great sign of synodality in the church where the bishops are deeply pastoral, very, very with the people, very much Francis, Pope Francis bishop. So I love being there. Uh, it, was, it was great to be there, but it's nice to be back too. How are you doing? I'm doing good. I'm, I'm at the point in the semester where a lot of social events are happening. There are some conferences. I'm doing some traveling. And as we've discussed before on the show, that really drains my batteries. And so I'm having to be very conscientious about recovery time. Just given the schedule, there's not always the possibility of actual recovery time. And so I'm running at a deficit right now. And that's okay. I know how to do that. But I'm also just aware that I have to be careful because it'll start to take a physical toll if I don't do that. And that's all good. Uh, but I mean, the reasons why I've been run ragged have been wonderful reasons. We had our housewarming party and had about 50 people come in and warm our house. <laughs> and it was a delightful time. Had a, a mix of, of longtime friends from here in Chicago, but also colleagues from Loyola and students from Loyola and, and people that I have, I've just met and people that I have known for years here in the city. And I love those kinds of events to bring together those different circles of acquaintance, because that means that interesting conversations start to happen and, and people leave from from an event like that, my hope is that they leave with kind of new possibilities in their own in their own orbit as well. And then also I got a chance to go down to Kansas to Southwestern University and deliver a keynote lecture at uh, Southwestern College. And I, I came to find out, you know, it had been presented to me as, hey, we just want you to come and talk about theology and podcasting. And I was like, oh, okay, so the, this is going to be a bunch of millennials. This is going to be... I came to find out that this particular keynote was a keynote that last year, Serene Jones, the president of, of Union. Uh, Union Seminary yeah. in New York, and then years ago in the 1960s, Howard Thurman was one of the deliverers of this lecture. And so I, I, <laughs> I there's a story from my college of a, of a classmate who who sat in a restaurant and ordered a bottle of wine that he thought was $50, and then it turned out that it was a $500 bottle of wine. And he was a person of means, and he was also a person who liked his alcohol. But the, the quotation for the time was, if I knew it was a $500 bottle of wine, I would have drank it much more slowly. And, the, <laughs> and that, that was one, once That's I, a great line. Once I kind of figured out that the, that the talk was not just me coming up and sort of speaking off the cuff, actually I ended up sort of writing out a nice 45-minute talk and I feel like it was well-received. I'm hoping to get it on the web at some point because it was, I think, it was a fun talk, and it was a talk that uh, that both spoke to this medium that we're in, podcasting, but also tried to anchor it in some wider questions of teaching theology and how we do that in a changing landscape of the 21st century. And I really had a good time. Was it recorded audio, audio recording? It's an audio recording. I, I make sure whenever I travel because of the nerd kind yeah. of person that I am, that I always record things. And so it's it's a board mix from the soundboard. Sure. And and they all, I think they also did an open air recording, but but you between, got the higher quality. Between yeah. those two, we're going to get a good quality recording. So. Yeah. Well, the reason yeah. I ask is um, maybe that's something we could throw up in the Patreon stream. That's a great idea. I think that I will do that. And and there's also some slides that go with it. I'll see if I can I can add those as well. But you know, those are good things that are happening. And I'm I'm just I'm, I will be very very happy when Thanksgiving hits because I'm enjoying the idea of just having a little bit more downtime and Thanksgiving is sort of the flag on the horizon that says the end of the semester is coming. Amen, brother. I am so looking forward to that myself. November has become a very crazy time over the years. It used to be my favorite time. It is the month of my birth. And so as a kid, it was always very exciting. And then Thanksgiving follows. And once Thanksgiving rolls around, Christmas is right away. Um, but as I get older and time is relative, of course, it gets it goes by quicker and quicker and quicker. But one thing my own academic institution is doing this year is 
not holding classes the whole week of Thanksgiving. And, and that's really a pragmatic decision because oftentimes students travel or leave or, you know, as you've experienced before too, they you hold class, but then half the class doesn't show up, this sort of thing. But more relevant to a graduate school of theology is that it's it's you know, part of that week is also the AARSBL. The American Academy of Religion Society of Biblical Literature Conference. Which is um, its own <laughs> behemoth of an event of about, you know, twelve or 14,000 religion scholars. We've talked about this in earlier episodes. David and I have both are kind of longtime veterans of, of that uh, freak show of, a, of an academic conference. But because, you know, basically the faculty are kind of running back and forth and it just made a lot of sense. But the good news is, is that that week is now another kind of buffer in in the same way that you're talking about, just a a couple days at least to take a breath, to kind of get recollected. And so I wish you and and your family all the best in that because we probably, yeah, we certainly won't have dropped another episode uh, before then. And to our listeners too, you know, a a very happy Thanksgiving. You'll be in our uh, prayers and thoughts and uh, in solidarity around the table wherever you find yourself. And with that, we're going to take a short break, and then we will be back to get into our first topic. Thank you for listening, as always. I'm David Dalt. I'm here with Dan Haran, and this is The Francis Pack. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Dan Haran. I'm here with David Dalt. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss a variety of topics from a perspective informed by our shared Catholic faith. In late October, a pastor in Florence, South Carolina, made headlines when he denied Holy Communion to former vice president and current presidential candidate Joe Biden. The pastor, whose name is Father Robert Morey, is on staff at St. Anthony Catholic Church in Florence. The reason given was that Biden, who is a member of the Democratic Party, has recently changed his opinion on public funding of abortion. Biden is a lifelong Catholic and and a very proud Catholic at that, and in the past was on record as opposing such funding. According to the National Catholic Reporter, Maury, the priest who refused Biden communion, issued a written statement which said in part, quote, Any public figure who advocates for abortion places himself or herself outside of church teaching. As a priest, it is my responsibility to minister to those souls entrusted to my care, and I must do so even in the most difficult situations, unquote. This is part of the ongoing debates surrounding the interpretation of two sections of canon law, or perhaps alternatively put, this debate has focused attention on the interpretation of two sections of canon law. Canon 916 states that anyone conscious of being in a state of grave sin should abstain from partaking of the Eucharist. Father Mori, however, appears to be invoking Canon 915, which states that, quote, those who have been excommunicated or interdicted after the imposition or declaration of the penalty and others obstinately persevering in manifest grave sin are not to be admitted to Holy Communion, unquote. The interpretation of this canon has been the subject of much discussion among canon lawyers, as well as basically, you know, anybody who has internet access, as we would seem. Now, David, while you and I are not technically canon lawyers, we are both trained theologians, professional theologians with doctoral degrees and with faculty positions. And I, having uh, earned a Master of Divinity in preparation for ordination to the Roman Catholic Ministerial Priesthood, have had number a number of graduate courses in canon law. So I have some background, though I, I don't claim to be a practitioner. Nevertheless, with that background and with our knowledge as broad as it is, we're going to take a few minutes to think through some of these issues at play here. And so where do we begin? Well, I I think one of the things that we begin, and thanks for reminding us of what Canons 915 and 916 say, but I think it's important, first of all, to balance that against the baseline. And the baseline would be Canon 843. Sacred ministers cannot deny the sacraments to those who seek them at appropriate times and are properly disposed and are not prohibited by law from receiving them. Now, it's the prohibited by law thing that I think is causing a lot of confusion because I'm going to say this, and you can push back if you want to, but this has been my impression as a layperson, that there's a sort of Protestantization of Catholic canon law, a notion that somehow if you read it in a book and you interpret it in the harshest possible way, then you have the traditional reading. And that that tends to be what a lot of people approach when they come at these questions. They say, oh, well, it says this, and therefore we have to interpret it as fully as we can, and there's no leniency and no interpretation. And so I'd be interested in your take on that. Yeah, I think that's a very accurate description of the sort of broad discussion and how canon law is, is invoked. I think there are a couple things worth noting. One is that the term law 
is confusing for a lot of people, including the laity, especially those who are in Anglo-originated contexts. And I, I would put the United States as one of these, by which I mean we are descendants of the British Empire in which the common law, the law of the land, which uh, which is predicated on a lowest common denominator, is the kind of intellectual and juridical inheritance that we've received. So most Americans, for instance, will look, including clerics and religious and faithful people, will look at rules and laws and instructions in the church and outside the church as though they were looking at British common law or American common law, precedential law. So here's the great example is um, is speed limits. In the United States, a posted speed limit is, is the lowest common denominator. You're either above it or below it, period. And, uh, you know, if it's 65 miles per hour, if you're going 66, you're breaking the law. The code of canon law is formed on a different model. And the model is, is a Roman understanding of law, which is what we might call, and I'm sim- oversimplifying here, aspirational law. And now it doesn't mean that people, it, it's not relevant, it's not important, but it's something that is ideal. It's aspired to, as opposed to understood as the lowest common denominator. And so this is really important because the Code of Canon Law is not, as such, a list of precedents or, or thresholds that are, that are absolutely clear. Case in point is Canon 915, as I shared in our, in our opening of this segment, it's very vague, right? There isn't like a, a 65 mile per hour limit. Now, part of it is quite clear. When you talk about excommunication and interdicted, interdiction is a, a, is a kind of penal response to uh, violations of, of church norms and, and practices. So that, first of all, that has to be declared. Same thing with excommunication. Now, here's the problem, if I may. I'm sorry, to, uh, I'm interested to get your take on this too, but just by way of background, Father Mori here in South Carolina took it upon himself to determine a communicant, a poten- somebody approaching the sacrament, was outside of communion. He used that language in his press release. Interesting that he issued a press release, by the way, which I think all of this is about his own sort of self-centered martyr complex, you know, that it's up to him to preserve these things. We can talk about that. In any event, he presumes, which is, as you rightly said, in reference to other canons, is a violation of the spirit of the sacrament, spirit of, of the code itself. He presumes that Biden is out of communion with the church, outside of communion. Now, excommunication by definition is something that one does by their actions. That's true. And that a formal declaration, as we see here in Canon 915, is actualized by a local ordinary, by a bishop. I was going to say, because a priest cannot excommunicate someone. No, and again, it's, it's not to harp on this, but technically a bishop can't excommunicate somebody. One, by the, the, the language in the Latin, and I won't bring up the Latin, but the, the, the paraphrase here of the Latin is, one, by the very action that they commit, puts themselves outside of communion. And therefore, to be, quote-unquote, excommunicated is actually a matter of a bishop declaring something that already is. It's not a punishment. Interdict is a punishment. And that's a really important distinction. Again, people don't realize this. Interdiction is a punishment that arises, that's, that's prescribed, as it were, from the code. Excommunication is a result of something someone does. So one example is apostasy. You know, if you are going to reject the faith by rejecting the faith, saying, for instance, you don't believe in the divinity of Christ, you are out of communion with the church. You're outside of communion. But that may not be publicly known. That may not be declared by a bishop. Therefore, the, what's, what's said here in Canon 915 doesn't apply, and therefore Father Mori would have no idea. Well, and the other problem is, is that Father Mori may not have access to the full range of knowledge about Joe Biden. Joe Biden could have confessed. Joe Biden, I mean, assuming that Joe Biden was in manifest grave sin, Joe Biden could have repented that and made amends. That's right. And so all of those things could have changed between the last public statement and Joe Biden presenting himself. And so one of the things that these canons presuppose is that anyone who would try and enact them would have a primary relationship with this parishioner, that they would sort of have a sense of the parishioner and they would be in relationship with the parishioner and that they would have had the opportunity prior to the public presentation for participation in the Eucharist to either to correct or to be in conversation with them. So, yeah, that's right. That's the second part about the obstinately persevering and manifest grave sin. But here's the thing about that. There's also, I want to say another thing too. The, co- the canon itself, Canon 915, doesn't prescribe 
the refusal of communion. There's a there's a passive statement that the passive instruction is are not to be admitted to Holy Communion. It doesn't say one is to refuse Holy Communion to one of these people. They're not to be admitted to it. That can be interpreted as a discernment of conscience that the person themselves shouldn't approach the Blessed Sacrament, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that's important too. Father Mori has taken this, as so many others have, as license to be the judge and the jury and the executor when it comes to approaching the sacrament. I think the other thing too is there's a bit of a paradox here, mm-hmm. which is you're right to say that that second part, so excommunication and interdiction are things that are declared publicly by a bishop. So they're on the record, they're for all to know, and it happens incredibly rarely. But the second part is the one that I think Maury is really relying on and that others will point to as license to refuse communion. And what you said is correct. It also presumes not just a casual person who's showing up for mass on Sunday like Joe Biden on one weekend or something, but, a, but an ongoing relationship. But here's the catch. To deny somebody communion, you're starting to get into what's called the internal forum in the Code of Canon Law in, in, in church norms which is stuff that's reserved to spiritual direction and the seal of the confession. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, this is what gets really complicated. You can't, let's say Joe Biden did go to the sacrament of penance, did go to confession. If you know that, you cannot act on that to acknowledge, to confirm or deny that that's real, that that, that really happened rather. And so you see what I mean? That, yeah. that, that it's, it's, that's what we mean by internal forum and church law, which is like it's not – it's by definition and cannot be admissible in public. Well, and I want to take this in a slightly different direction and in, in the spirit of Canon 843, which I cited a couple minutes ago. And that is if we are thinking that the Eucharist is a weapon and that the Eucharist is meant as like a swat on the behind for someone who has been bad, and I'm scare-quoting bad here, because we're all bad in one sense. Yeah, that's why we have the penitential act. None of us are worthy. Yeah, and why we say, you know, Lord, I'm not worthy that you should enter under my roof, but only say the word and my soul shall be healed. I mean, we literally say that before we receive communion. We all acknowledge our unworthiness. But Canon 843, I think, spins this in a different direction. And it goes with the sort of metaphor that Francis has given us of the field hospital for a hurting world. You know, the people that are coming to our doors may be coming, and this may be the only respite that they find in a very harsh world. It may be the only place where they are given unconditional love, this kind of love that Christ showed us when he spread out his arms and he was hung on the cross. The love that says, Lord, forgive them, they know not what they do. And if we take that spirit of hospitality and love and we instead twist it into once again, as the rest of the world is, is wanting to do, condemnation of those that cross the threshold of our churches or, or unwelcome for those that cross the, the threshold of our churches, if we take a worldly idea that it's our job to guard the hedge and that it's not God's purview to judge and to do that, then we are, we're casting ourselves, first of all, in a very dangerous position scripturally, because judge not lest ye be judged, but also I think that we are sending a message that is scandalous to the world, because that's not what we're supposed to be doing as Christians. Yeah, that last point's so important, because another thing you'll hear, and it, it hasn't been invoked so much in this particular case in South Carolina, but over the years, it's, it's a claim to avoid scandal. By denying somebody the sacraments, they're somehow avoiding the scandalization of others. Let me just say another thing, too, because I think you're bringing up a really, really important point that's lost in a lot of the public discourse. And that is, you know, we've talked a moment ago about what canon law is, how we understand the law. It's it's based on the Roman system, etc. It's also, I should say, and this comes from my former canon law professor, James Corden, Father James Corden, who is one of the most preeminent canon lawyers in the world. He's one of the three uh, co-editors of the standard commentary on the code of canon law. So, I mean, you can't get it from a better source. And I remember on the very first day of the very first canon law class I had, he told us that the code of canon law is not an answer book. The code of canon law is a theological text. And that's really important for us to remember. Very important. Not that there aren't prescriptions in there, not that there aren't instructions or norms in there, but it's an important thing for us to remember. The other thing is back to this other point about that you bring up about the Eucharist. What is the purpose of the sacrament? What do we mean by the sacrament? And here, I think you're right. I've long been on the record publicly about this, and I've used that same expression that you used about the Eucharist is not a weapon, and yet it's become weaponized. And I think it's worthwhile to go back to the doctors of the church and to the great theologians, the ones 
that we should be looking to. And I think of Augustine and Peter Lombard and St. Bonaventure who talk about the primary purpose of the Eucharist is as viaticum. It is food for the journey. It is to accompany us. It's Christ's gift of self so that we can, as Sacrosanctum Concilium, the document on the liturgy of Vatican II says, so that we can go forward as the source of our faith and the Eucharist itself is the summit to which we return. And so we do that because Christ accompanies us, not because we're perfect, not because we deserve it, but because we need that healing grace. And that comes straight from Augustine. And Augustine develops a tradition, you know, going back, this goes back to the fourth century, where he says that, and this gets developed by Lombard and then Bonaventure and Aquinas and others in the Middle Ages, that there are, when you receive communion, when you receive the Blessed Sacrament, you can receive it in two ways. And he says the first is everybody who receives the Blessed Sacrament receives it sacramentally. It is the real presence, the true presence of Christ, the sacramental presence of Christ in, in the Eucharist. He says, though, but there's another way that if you are rightly disposed and maybe in what some people would later call a state of grace, you know, you know, maybe, you know, you have, you know, for a variety of reasons, maybe you celebrated the sacrament of penance, maybe you are in an open place spiritually, there's something going on, you can receive it, as he puts it, spiritually. But he doesn't deny that people who are in a state of sin, as people might put it, and as you rightly said, we all are, <laughs> pretty much, that we don't actually receive Christ's presence. You know, we don't actually receive, instead we, we do. And, and it's important that we do because that's what encourages us, builds us up, carries us forward. It's the gift of God's self to us. Well, and I want to stick with Augustine for a moment because you said that Augustine was alive during the fourth century. And one of the things that Augustine weighed in on was the Donatist controversy. And that was for those that, you know, don't have this ready to hand in your, in your mental history. People Rolodexes, aren't talking about this around the water cooler. <laughs> but they should be. Yeah. It was a time when the church was under deep persecution and some some went into hiding, some were killed, and some stayed and basically compromised with those that were persecuting. When the persecution ended, those who were in hiding and those who had been killed were, were named by some traditionalists of their time as the true church, and those who had compromised were seen as the false and the bogus church. And so the idea was, well, let's just get the true church, the traditional church, the real church, the strong church, the macho church, and let's throw out, you know, the, the people who had been part of the church that was compromised. The problem being is that in a generation, a lot of people have been baptized. What do you do with the people who've been baptized? They had a choice. They could either be exclusivist and be very narrow and say only those who who held to the firmest possible interpretation of the tradition are allowed to be in the church, or they could be hospitable and they could say the spirit is going to be at work even if it's imperfect in the way that we work. And Augustine sided with the hospitality party, and that is the tradition of our church. And so when we look at a priest like Father Maury and we say, well, he's a traditional priest, and I'm scare quoting that, people like LifeSite News are going to want to say, he's a traditionalist priest. No, the tradition of the church is hospitality. The tradition of the church is acknowledging that we're all coming unworthily to this and that we need to be aware of that and not try and, and create some kind of false barrier. And this will kind of lead well, I think, into our next segment because this is something that people like Cardinal Burke have, have argued that somebody like Maury and, and Burke will, will push back to you, David, and say, well, actually, no, what's hosp hospitable is the tough love of denying people the sacrament so they can, can experience conversion. And, and I reject that as well because, no, that you're taking then the place of God. It's, it's God's role and God's grace that plays here, and it's a community of, of welcome and support and love. You know, it's interesting. Jesus did not deny people access to himself who are in so-called— you know, manifest grave sin, whether that be adultery, whether that be betrayal, whether that be denial. Or demon possession. He or, didn't deny demon-possessed yeah. people to come to him. Exactly. And so I think, you know, it begins with the relationship. It begins with the invitation. And it begins, as Augustine says, with the reception of the sacrament. You know, I, I think the other thing, too, is especially in a day and age where so few people regularly participate in the sacraments, who go to Mass on Sunday— you know, this is the thing that people ostensibly lament and wring their hands about. Why aren't people going to church? Can we not see the grace of God at work in their lives when they come into the church, when they walk up that aisle to receive communion? We have no idea how God is operative in their heart and conscience and mind at that point. 
I just want to say one more thing, too, about the political nature of this, you know, weaponizing of the Eucharist, which is that this is not a pastoral solution. This is not a, a, an act of hospitality. It is not following the code of canon law literally or strictly or b- in the best way. What it is is it's using the Eucharist and the sacraments and the faith of the church as a political tool. And what Maury and Burke and others are doing is turning the Eucharist into an idol. They are idol worshipers who neglect the fact that the Blessed Sacrament is the sacramental presence of Christ and that God can take care of God's self. And, you know, the reason why I feel so strongly about this is because you don't see people like Burke and Maury and others willing to be so adamant in their quote-unquote hospitable tough love encouraging conversion, end quote, with some people on their own political perspective. So I think of why aren't they advocating as well the denial of communion to somebody like Attorney General Bill Barr, who's a Roman Catholic and who is overseeing a, a, a number of of sinful and, and harmful policies. Or, you know, former advisor to President Trump, Steve Bannon, who fancies himself a sort of vanguard of traditional Catholicism and is happens to be a, a personal friend of Cardinal Burke's. You know, it's interesting that it's only one-sided and it's deeply focused on one political party. And that reveals the sham that this argument actually is. And I just want to take the flip side of that, and that is we also have data, and we know that when those who are in transition from one gender to another, those who are embattled in their attempt to articulate their sexual preference in families that are hostile, when they encounter this kind of, quote, tough love, unquote, we know what happens. They self-harm, and sometimes they even, in fact, commit suicide. And so if we are a church that is about life, if we are a church that is about the affirmation of life from conception to natural death, then we have to be affirming of those that are in struggle, because we're all in struggle. But those who are in visible struggle, those who are in visible struggle or those who are in invisible struggle, we need to find a way that the church is the most welcoming place for them, not the least. And I think that's a good note on which to transition into the next topic. And so thank you, Dan, for uh, sharing your knowledge about this, and I've, I've learned a lot in this conversation, and I, I'm looking forward to more chances to talk about this topic with you. But for now, you're listening to The Francis Effect. I'm David Dalt. I'm here with Dan Horan. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm David Dalt. I'm here with my friend Dan Haran. Every couple of weeks, we get together and talk about current topics in the news through a lens of our shared Catholic faith. Last week, the New York Times published a lengthy interview with Cardinal Raymond Burke that was conducted by the columnist Ross Douthat. It accompanied his regular column in which he asks the question, quote, what will happen to conservative Catholicism, unquote. Douthat is a politically and socially conservative Catholic who has used his platform on the masthead of the New York Times to, at times, critique Pope Francis. This agenda is also found in his 2018 book, To Change the Church, Pope Francis and the Future of Catholicism. But for all of Douthat's occasional hand-wringing about the pontificate of Francis, there's a stark contrast between this conservative convert to Catholicism and his dialogue partner, Cardinal Burke. The latter exhibits no respect for the Holy Father, while the former, Douthat, at least recognizes the authority of the Bishop of Rome, even if he isn't always in agreement with his policies or pastoral disposition. So what are some of the highlights of this conversation, Dan, and what is noteworthy about this interview? Well, I think it's interesting, first and foremost, that somebody like Douthat, who is, as as you mentioned, self-styled conservative, um, he's a New York Times columnist, he has a big platform, that he would use that platform to draw attention to or give voice to uh, Cardinal Burke, who is, as you rightly say, you know, a very, very strong critic of Pope Francis. Now, it's interesting, you know, just to qualify a little bit, what he says in the interview, he, he Burke, that is, is constantly trying to adjust or qualify his critique. And, it, and it's, he says, you know, I don't have a personal critique of Pope Francis. He doesn't he doesn't go as far as to deny that Pope Francis is a legitimate pope, but he then he kind of talks out of both sides of his mouth because toward the end of the interview, he starts talking about how there's a sort of conundrum from his vantage point that he believes some of the some of the conversations, particularly around the Synod on Family and the recent Synod on the Amazon, that he's claiming that Pope Francis is leading the church into schism, and doubt that to his credit is pushes back and says, "But wait a minute." 
the the idea of schism is actually breaking communion with the Bishop of Rome. The Bishop of Rome is the symbol of communion. He's right about that. That's theologically accurate. And Burke goes, well, I know. That's right. There's no response. We don't have anything. We, we don't know how to deal with this. So he's kind of creating this like unique situation, this perfect storm, and, and, and the problem isn't people like himself who disagree in, in maybe, in effect, putting himself outside of communion with the Bishop of Rome, which is a big problem we can talk about. But he's somehow claiming that the Bishop of Rome is leading to schism, which is mind-boggling. Well, there's, there's a soft conspiracy behind this, and you can find this in people who think that there's a Jesuit cabal, attempt, cabal to undermine yeah. the church or the Alta Venedita. Or, and, I mean, there, there's a lot of stuff that is published by people like Ave Maria Press that you can you can fall down a rabbit hole with. But but part of that, the, the tip of the iceberg of that, is is those who would gently suggest that maybe Vatican II was not a legitimate council or maybe no pope since a certain pope has been a legitimate pope. And what that does, when you begin to entertain those kinds of thoughts, you have basically undermined the basic mechanism of how Catholicism has recognized itself, and that is a visible church that has a visible head, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And if that is, if, if you are already entertaining the notion that somehow the real church exists invisibly somewhere else, I've said this on the program before, and Dan, you're welcome to push back if, if you think that this is in, incorrect, but my position is that you're basically at that point declaring yourself to be a Protestant, because you've, you've imagined <laughs> yeah. a church that's better than the, than the visible church. Yeah, I mean, I always kind of cringe a little bit, as you know, about de facto Protestantism, because I don't know, I feel like that besmirches Protestants. I mean, in all fairness, I don't want to make it an either-or sort of thing, because the real truth is that the technical definition is they're schismatic. You know, Archbishop Lefebvre, when he broke in the 1980s with his several bishops who did not recognize the legitimacy of the Second Vatican Council and and were effectively, they very clearly put themselves outside of communion, and then Paul VI and John Paul II subsequently, you know, declared them outside of communion, excommunicated, as we talked about in the previous segment. Those people are not Protestants. They don't see themselves that way. They are schismatic Catholics. They view, they view themselves as true Catholics. So that's my, that's my only pushback is, is, the, is the nomenclature. I don't think Protestant is the right word. I think schismatic in this case, that you, you're right to say that they view themselves as sort of the true church. And Burke is, is somebody like that. Now, it's interesting. He's somebody who is, is a, by all accounts, a very accomplished canon lawyer. He held a very high position as prefect of the Apostolic Signatura, which is one of the kind of high courts of, of the church in Rome. But he's somebody who, he's, he's a Wisconsin farm boy. And he's somebody who has always viewed the Code of Canon Law not as the theological text that it is, steeped in the Roman tradition, but he's viewed it through, I would call, a British common law, American precedential law lens. Now, I mean, it's interesting because one of, his, one of the things that comes up in this interview with the New York Times is that he, his objection to uh, some of the conversation at the Synod on the Family was around what marriage means and how marriage is lived out perfectly and imperfectly and so forth. And he objects with, with such vitriol, it seems, in this conversation to one of his brother cardinals who at one point suggests that actually marriage in, in a sense is an ideal, that all couples, all married couples, nobody embraces it perfectly. And he hates that and pushes back and says, no, even the weakest people who enter into the sacrament of marriage are given the grace to perfect it. And, and I don't know what the hell he's talking about. I mean, you're a married man. Have well, you perfected it? No, far from it. <laughs> and I think that speaks to what we were saying earlier about hospitality. And think about this in terms of social media. So one of the criticisms I've often heard of Facebook is that people put their perfect selves on Facebook, and it creates ideals that other people feel unable to live up to. I can't believe that so-and-so gets to travel all these places and do all these wonderful things. Well, they're only showing you the best possible, most polished version of themselves. You don't get to see the rough and ready, the vulnerable parts of themselves. The church, I think, should not be about polish. It should be about displayed vulnerability. I mean, what is a crucifix? besides displayed vulnerability in extremity. But if we think instead that somehow we need to pretty up Jesus on the cross, if we think that somehow Jesus on the cross didn't have his Gethsemane moment when he was saying, oh my gosh, how can I even do this? If we try and erase the vulnerability of those moments and simply present a perfect Jesus and simply present a perfect church, that's a recipe for things like the sex abuse scandal. That's a recipe for things like any number of scandals 
that happened behind the scenes, and when they actually come to light, we're shocked because how could how could a priest do this? How could it? Well, it's because we're human and we're we're fallible. Well, and if I may, um, just a kind of related note, my column last week in NCR was ex- exactly about this. Not explicitly, but the Bishop of San Diego, Bishop Robert McElroy gave a lecture, coincidentally, in San Antonio um, a couple weeks ago, and he talks about the need for a more synodal church more broadly, particularly in the United States, and he names exactly the thing that you're saying is one of the diagnoses where he says he calls it a bunker mentality and this kind of defensiveness of the church instead of an openness and hospitality, and he said that is part of what enabled and and motivated the cover-up of the sex abuse crisis. Well, and I also want to say, I mean, I think most people think that canon law is a very abstract subject, but since we've been talking about canon law a lot in this episode. If you're curious where canon law is most applied most often in your diocese, it is around the question of of marriage. It's around the question of marriage and whether or not a marriage is licit, whether or not a marriage can be dissolved, all these sorts of all these sorts of questions. And that is where the rubber meets the road in terms of canonicity in most dioceses. Yeah, and I think that's right. And, and that's where it's kind of pastorally so significant. And one of the interesting things Burke says in this interview that he is very upset about how not just the conversation about the possibility of remarried, you know, divorced and remarried couples participating more fully in the life of the church and the sacramental life, but he even says the parallel with somebody like Steve Bannon and Steve Miller and Donald Trump is just so freaky because he says he has a problem with the number of annulments that are granted. And so an annulment, you know, again, to your point about the the kind of common usage, is not a dissolution of marriage. Because according to the teaching of the church in the Code of Canon Laws, it stands, a marriage is forever. It's it's indissoluble. And so the way around that is, how do you justify the possibility of a marriage breaking apart and, and acknowledged by the church? And it's you find a loophole. I hate to be so crass about it, but that's essentially what an annulment is. And an annulment says that a valid sacramental marriage never took place. Now, a lot of people, when they hear that, rightly so, I mean, from a pastoral perspective, say, I don't want to go through this process because though this has not worked out or though this is a situation where even if it's mutually kind of an amicable divorce, there was a time where this was, this, you can't say this wasn't real. What were we doing? Play acting a marriage for 10, 20, 30 years, et cetera. So, you know, it's, it's a deeply tensive situation. It's a, it's a sensitive one that people I don't think fully understand. An annulment is not just a Catholic divorce. It is a declaration that because of some loophole, some impediment, that the marriage never could actually take place. And there are a number, we don't have to get into that here, but, but you're right, that's how most people encounter it. The fact that Burke is upset that that pastoral loophole, as it were, which is the only one that exists at present in the Roman Catholic Church regarding marriage and being remarried in the church, that that is too widely, in his view, applied, I find deeply upsetting. And I see the parallel. I mentioned the, the Trump administration here. It's, it's around immigration, yeah. where it's not just folks who are coming across through uh, extra legal means or something like this that upsets them, but people like Stephen Miller who want to actually restrict so-called legal immigration, the proper channels. And and to me, it's so abhorrent. Yeah. And so the parallel that you're drawing, so people who are, quote, in America unworthily, unquote, and people who present, quote, themselves to Eucharist unworthily, unquote, that's the parallel that you're drawing here is this notion of we have something special and we deserve it. And those who are simply coming across, the unwashed heathen that are coming across our thresholds, they don't deserve it. And that's a mindset. It, it's a, you talked about the bunker mindset. That's very different from the field ho- hospital mindset. And if you're in a field hospital and a wounded person comes across your threshold and you say, oh, I'm sorry, this person is unworthy. I'm not going to give them blood. I'm not going to stitch them up. I'm not going to give them the basic care. As a physician, you have violated your most basic oath, which is to do no harm. And I I would say, following the lead of, of Pope Francis and many others in the church, we mentioned Augustine, that one of the edicts of us as Christians is first to do no harm. And I've said before, if you're a Christian and the vulnerable around you feel more threatened and not less threatened and not more protected, you're doing your job wrong. Yeah. And on the notion of hospitality, I mean, I just want to, I think you're right to say that. In fact, it's something that, you know, McElroy and his, his 
uh, lecture that I referenced earlier says, he, he highlights four characteristics that should form the identity of the church as he puts it in the current pastoral moment. And he says it should be a missionary church, a participatory church, a welcoming church, and there's your, your hospitality, and a church of harmony which is, again, a reconciling spirit of the church. I also want to highlight that a welcoming church, a church of hospitality, isn't just let's be nice to one another and tolerate each other. It also is an acknowledgement that we, and I include myself here, I'm a Catholic priest, and I include my brother priests in this, like the priests we talked about in the last segment. I include people like Cardinal Burke and, and other bishops and, and who are also brother ministerial priests, that it's not up to us to judge and Pope Francis has made that point over and over again, particularly around the sacrament of, of penance, where he says it is not the place for the presider, the priest in, in confession, to grill people, to recognize, you know, they need to recognize that the Spirit is at work in their lives. And I feel the same way about the sacrament of the Eucharist. When they could, there's no social pressure for anybody to celebrate the sacraments, to have an active participatory life in the church. The fact that they darken the, the door of a church is a sign of God's work in their life somehow. That should be enough. And so this notion of hospitality, as you're rightly bringing up, I think is a challenge for those who are ministers in the church, ordained and lay, for those who are active lay members of the Catholic Church who are often very vocal and judgmental online and other places or in person sometimes, to take a step back and evaluate, why do you think you're in a position to evaluate another person's standing? Well, now, there's one last question that I want to ask you coming out of kind of the recent work of Ross Douthat, and that's his supposition that Pope Francis is, I'm paraphrasing here, but, quote, ruling by fiat, unquote, that Pope Francis is simply making willy-nilly decisions. I'd be interested in your take on how you'd address that criticism that Douthat raises. Yeah, I, I find it a, a spurious, a specious claim. I, I think that What's truly upsetting to people, and, and I don't know if, if Ross Douthat has this new – I mean, I, I don't want to harp on the fact that he's, he's a, a convert to Catholicism late in kind of an adult life, but more on his – more on his, I would say, theological ignorance. I, I believe he is a he's – a, he strikes me as a good man, a good family man, and committed to his own Christian faith and Catholic faith. And he's reflective. I mean, when you listen to him talk, he is willing to he's, self-criticize. It's Yeah, sometimes. Yeah, no, that's right. And, and I give him credit where credit's due. But I think the nuance, his, his understand, you know, what seems to him to be unilateral decision-making, I think is also partly a projection of what he understands the papacy to be. What isn't taken into consideration, for instance, and is not acknowledged by people like Burke and others, is that this Synod of Bishops on the Amazon involved a two-year preparation process in which more than 300 consultative sessions were held with people, women and men and families on the ground in places across the Amazon basin in various countries where they had listening sessions and town halls and gathering and surveys to get a sense of what the people of God were struggling with, what they needed, what the gifts of the community were. And so it's a consultative process. This is, again, what McElroy is arguing for with the emphasis on synodality and what Pope Francis is modeling in terms of real synodality. The same thing happened with the synods on the family. The same thing was intended with the synods on young adults. And the idea is you actually listen to the people of God because they, by virtue of their baptism, have the census fide. They have an intuition of the faith. They also have an experience of, of revelation as being kapax day, open to God, as equal to, to Cardinal Burke or Father Daniel Horan or anybody else. And I think, I think that's one of the things that's missing. The other thing I'll say is things that seem to be, again, by fiat, as you put it, or as Douthan and others might suggest, are actually developments, natural developments of church teaching as they've always stood. The case in point is the declaration of Pope Francis or the clarification in the catechism about the inadmissibility of the, the punishment of capital punishment, of state execution. Now, this is something that has been growing and developing, going all the way back to John Paul II and Benedict XVI and, and prior to them as well. And I think that it, it, it's a self-serving kind of specious claim to say that Pope Francis is making these decisions by himself, he 100% absolutely is not. That may be a good place for us to leave this discussion for now. This is The Francis Effect. I'm David Dalton. I'm here with Dan Horan. We'll be back in just a moment.
Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Dan Horan, still, and I'm still here with David Dalt, who is still David Dalt. You know the routine. We've just passed the 30-year anniversary of the removal of the Berlin Wall. The wall had stood for 28 years as a barrier to passage between the Soviet-controlled areas of Berlin and the Western world. During that time, it became much more than a physical obstacle. The wall became both a political and, at times, a poetic symbol for the dislocations of the modern world. For example, the 1987 film Wings of Desire, directed by Wim Wenders, used the Berlin Wall as a metaphor for the division between the Christian ideas of heaven and hell, as well as the body and the spirit. And in the world of music, the late superstar David Bowie recorded an album trilogy in Berlin and immortalized the moment of a kiss stolen by the wall under the baleful gaze of machine gunners in his classic song, Heroes. David, you've lived for a while in Berlin. You're a fan of David Bowie. You like the films of Vin Vendors. What have you been thinking about during this particular anniversary? Well, I didn't live in Berlin during the time when the wall was actually up and running. I lived there in, uh, in 2002, but I lived in the area of Berlin that was just near the location where the wall had been, a place called Potsdamer Platz. And walking in that space and sort of knowing the deep history of that, Berlin is a city that lived that internal division. And when I was there, the internal, the marks of the internal division were still there psychologically as well as physically. I mean, in East Berlin, you would still find many, many places where you couldn't get hot water in the apartments. The, the And that was the place, you know, where artists would go and they would live for cheap and they would create, they would create art. But that kind of internal division, I think, around the notion of a physical barrier, it just makes me think about kind of what we're living in right now. And, you know, we're living in a time where the notion of a physical barrier, the notion that a wall might work now when it certainly didn't work in Berlin, it's got me, this 30-year anniversary of the fall of the wall has me thinking a lot about all of those questions. But I'm curious, how old were you when the wall fell? And what are your memories of it? So I was six, six years old. And I have very little memories of that time. Um, I mean, I I do, but I wasn't I wasn't quite as attuned to world politics, global politics, as a, as a second grader as I am today. Surprise, surprise. But it is fascinating to think about how much has and has not changed in that time period. You know, you make reference to the use of of a wall, and that wall is is um, certainly something that is in the kind of political and popular discourse these days. I'm thinking of it in a different way, back to the kind of symbolic and metaphorical difference. And this is where I see not Germany, but the Ukraine and and how Ukraine has has become the metaphorical wall between uh, former Soviet Eastern Europe, pre- predominantly Russia and uh, and the European Union on the Western Front. And that, you know, the decision some years back under a previous president of Ukraine, not the one currently kind of ensnared in this this situation, this uh, impeachment process with Donald Trump, but um, in a, a couple of years back, you know, trying to vote, making a decision between entering, ap- appealing to enter the European Union or joining a trade agreement with Russia and a few of the eastern former Soviet satellite nations – the president made kind of a unilateral decision to, to turn east and the people rioted and eventually affected his ouster. And, and, and now we see this precarious situation after the, you know, after the, the Crimea was, was um, occupied by Russia. There's still an ongoing live battle and, and, and conflict at that border. And Ukraine really does stand in, in the middle of this kind of east-west reality. I mean, it's weird to think three decades later, we're kind of back to square one. Well, and, and so you're bringing up so many issues there. And if we want to think about this in terms of the David Bowie song that you referenced, there's a line from that song. We could be heroes. Okay, we're going to get a serious copyright violation if we sing too much more of that. I think we get 30 seconds, don't we? <laughs> no, we do not. Oh. There is no fair use. Oh. But there's a line from that. That was my parody, by the way. It wasn't actually, <laughs> I wasn't singing anything written by David Bowie. That was a parody. But there's, there's a line from that song that I think is instructive here. And the line from the song Heroes that says, the shame was on the other side. And anytime that we think that we can wall off a section of humanity, anytime that we think that we can either barricade or protect 
or bunker, to use a, a, a word from an earlier segment, and that somehow we're safe in the bunker, we are in the place of, of where the shame is. We're, we're walling ourselves off from others. We're walling. And that was the thing about being in Berlin, is that when you would talk to people about their experience of the wall, people who had been there during the time of the wall, was the, the way that it broke relationships. And there are, there are songs that were written about taking trains and lovers who were trapped when the wall went up on different sides of the wall or families who were trapped on different sides of the wall and what that meant for their hopes, their dreams, their ongoing life and livelihood. And we, we can see that now at our own American border when there were communities that crossed that border very easily in generations past. And their conversations now when they're interviewed about the ways in which the hardened border has begun to affect those relationships and those livelihoods. And I think that's the problem again and again when, you know, particularly in a situation like in, in the North American context, where, as I've said before, capital moves very easily across borders, but bodies cannot. And that's a recipe for, again, this wider question of shame. Yeah. I, I mean, I think you're, you're raising some really good points. It's got me thinking, too, about, again, I'm, I'm kind of hung up on the metaphorical uh, symbolism of, of the border in places, you know, that a city like Berlin is split. I mean, there are parallels on our southern border. I think of El Paso, Ciudad Juarez, which are in effect one city. And you can tell, you know, if you go up, if you're in a plane or if you're able to go up to a hill and see, I mean, it's a seamless sort of metropolis with a big wall through the center of it. I mean, it really is, in a sense, a modern kind of Berlin wall experience. But then I'm thinking of the kind of like more local ways that that plays out. I'm thinking about even where we are right now, David, here in, in the south side of Chicago, where through historical redlining and and other sorts of racist informed barriers that have been placed that are visible or invisible, that there is a border. I mean, the fact that it's very hard unless you order one to find a taxi on the south side of Chicago, even in a very relatively safe and relatively affluent neighborhood like Hyde Park or, you know, this this area here. Because there is this sense of wall, there's a wall that keeps people of color and people on the south side, which has come to symbolize something, maybe like an eastern Berlin, from the north side, which is a sort of, you know, the affluent western, predominantly white part of the city. And there's so much there to think about. And I'm, I'm conscious of the fact that we're a century away. So we've just passed the 100-year anniversary of a time when here in Chicago – they had to build a second YMCA for African-Americans because the Young Men's Christian Association would not allow African-Americans into, even though they were Christians. Even they, And so the, the, these notions of invisible walls and, and separations and red lines, like that is what we do when we, when we turn our backs on those who are in need. That is what we do when we turn our backs on those who are vulnerable. It can be a physical wall or it can be an emotional wall or it can be a rhetorical wall. But those pieces are, they have consequences. The shame is on the other side. I'm thinking about my experience of when the wall came down. It was 1989. It was my freshman year of college. And one of the things that I... You're so old. I know, I know. And nevertheless, I still can do cartwheels. But <laughs> the, the thing that I take away from that memory is that, you know, having been raised in the Cold War and having been raised in this notion of the permanence of the East-West division, the U.S.-Soviet division. One of the things that I take away from that memory is how quickly things that seem impossible to change can change. And for me, it's a message of renewed hope. It's a, it's a message that says that even in the moments when we think that the tomb is sealed, there is still resurrection. And even in the moments when we think that all is lost, there is still the possibility that we will be allowed to return to the land of promise. And I don't want to overplay this hand because, I mean, the world is hard and it's harsh, and we're in a hard and harsh time. Nevertheless, I take, I take hope from the fact that there are revolutionary moments, and these revolu the, the revolutionary moment was not the leaders deciding that they would tear the wall down. It was literally, it was a ground-up census fidelium. It was a moment of the people kind of speaking out and finally saying enough, and that led to and, and was part of 
the process politically that led to the dissolution of the wall. That all gives me tremendous hope. But I'd be interested to get your thoughts. Yeah. I mean, it's it's I appreciate that perspective because right now we looking around at local and, and global circumstances, it's really difficult to find signs of, of hope. And, you know, there are little things, little things along the way. I think that we're three years into the Trump administration and three years into, you know, again, I just came back from England. So Brexit is on the mind. And, you know, those things haven't totally destroyed those two countries yet, the United States or or Great Britain. Nevertheless, these are pressing sort of global concerns. And, and it's difficult to find difficult to find hope. So maybe, as you're saying, you know, uh, kind of looking back at history, there's a bit of a Psalm 22 action here. You know, Psalm 22 opens famously with lament, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, etc. But a lot of folks forget the second half and final part of Psalm 22, which is the the psalmist recalls that the Lord was present for the for the psalmist's people in the past when they struggled and were in difficult times. And therefore, that is a reminder, a sign of hope for the present, that though the psalmist is facing some persecution, feels abandoned, is struggling, is under attack, nevertheless has hope, has faith that God will prevail. And this, I think, speaks to your point about resurrection earlier. So insofar as, as, you know, the anniversary of the fall of the Berlin Wall presents that to us, I welcome that. Though I have to admit, I'm a bit jaded and cynical right now. It's 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 one thing to think about that, and I don't know if I'm beyond the lament part of the psalm in terms of of uh, kind of global politics and and the circumstances on the ground. There are just too many people who are suffering, yeah, and too many real consequences for me to be hopeful, you know. But I think that is it's 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 the intended natural outcome. It should be where we're going. And that's where I, I find some solace in Psalm 22, and I see the parallel with the wall. Well, and you, in raising the fact that we're, we've sort of come around the circle again, and we're seeing the same circumstances that we saw 30 years ago, 50 years ago, that brings to mind Ecclesiastes. There's truly nothing new under the sun, and everything is vanity. I mean, I, so I understand the, cyn- the cynicism of the moment of like, oh my goodness, we're back here again. Didn't we learn anything? And you can say that about, you know, America pursuing dreams of empire. You know, every empire that we know has ended in complete and abject failure. And yet the temptation to consolidate power and the temptation to create the the dislocations of human relationships that go along with consolidating power, that temptation keeps drawing not only people but nations into its web. Why is it that after generation upon generation, we still can't seem to learn that what Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself and God above all, why can't we just get that simple, that simple message? We're even more simple where Jesus says, love your enemies. Oh, yeah. You know, <laughs> forget about your neighbor. I mean, if, you're na- if you don't have a neighbor because the wall's in the way, then the people on the other side that, you know, you talked about earlier, the, the line from the Bowie song about, you know, it's always the other side. It's yeah. always the other side, you know. To me, that that is the key, and and it's really difficult. I'll be the first to acknowledge that you know, not just enemies, but people who we find who disagree with us, who we find difficult, people who are who are causing harm to others. It's very challenging, but you're right. Yeah. So there's an interesting way to read that line from Bowie. I remember standing by the wall, and the shame was on the other side, and in between there comes the kiss, and. It's interesting that those who built the wall believed that what they were keeping out was the decadence of the West. And it's interesting that Bowie takes that notion of protection and turns it around on itself and says, what you've actually done is you've, you've contained your own decadence with yourself. And that where we, actually, where we actually find the redemption from what we fear is exactly what you're saying. By transgressing the wall, by transgressing the difference, by loving the enemy— by by welcoming the stranger, that that's where our redemption comes. And isn't it, I mean, to bring it kind of full circle with, with this episode, you know, our other segments have, have touched on this desire to put up walls to protect a certain way of life or a vision of the church or who's in charge. And, you know, it, ironically, again, these are the same sort of people who are more inclined to nationalism in the, in the American empire, and yet they're being very Soviet-minded in this regard. Let's put up this wall. Only so many people are allowed to communion. Only the people who agree with us who are the purists according to our measure and so forth. So I think there, you know, there's, there's a lot of uh, 
there's a lot of bandwidth to run with uh, in, in terms of reflecting on and considering this anniversary. I do, as we're kind of wrapping up this segment, have one question for you, David. Du bist kein Berliner? Yes, I am a jelly donut. <laughs> Well played. And maybe with that, um, we should uh, wrap it up for the day. So listeners, as always, we thank you for being here. Thank you very much. And we will uh, be back with you in two weeks. I'm David Dalt. I'm here with my friend Dan Haran. This has been The Francis Effect. The Francis Effect is produced by Sandberg Media. We recorded the show at the William Adams Studios here in beautiful Hyde Park on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. The opinions expressed on this program are our own and do not reflect the position of any institutions with which we might be affiliated. We have production space courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. They're not responsible for the content of this program, but they're wonderful folks, and you should check them out at zygoncenter.org. That's Z-Y-G-O-N center.org. We also want to give a shout-out to our friends at Salt and Light Catholic Media Foundation. They are also not responsible for the content of this program, but they gave us their kind permission to use the name The Francis Effect, and we appreciate it. Check out their work at saltandlighttv.org. We're supported by listeners like you. If you want to join us in this bold adventure, you can go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod. Not only do you get the warm satisfaction of a virtuous deed well done, but you also unlock bonus content from our episodes. Again, that's patreon.com slash francisfxpod. We appreciate it very much. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at FrancisFXPod. That's Francis, the letters F and X, and the word pod. Likewise, our website is FrancisFXPod.com. And if you want to send us a question or comment, you can always talk to Frank by emailing FrancisEffectPod at gmail.com. That's effect spelled the English way, E-F-F-E-C-T. If you're here for the first time, welcome. We have so many episodes for you to go back and listen to on our website, and we hope that you do. Thank you for listening. <laughs>